how do you digitize the paper? How do you automate the processes? And how do you eliminate the redundancy within that mortgage process? Welcome to Actualizing Success. In this podcast series, our in-house advisors discuss today's finance and technology topics with an emphasis on solutions that embrace tomorrow. Well, hello, everyone. Um, Today, we're going to have a discussion about the future of the mortgage industry after COVID. I'm Matt Sue, partner with Actualize Consulting, um, and I'm joined with John Cooper, senior manager, who is in charge of a lot of our things digital. And before we start, I guess I ought to admit that the title of the podcast is a little misleading because we we all know that COVID's not really over, um, but people are settling back into their old routines. Many things are back to normal, well, or at least as normal as they they have been or could be, I suppose. Um, so today we're going to explore some trends that we saw emerge during the last two years, and we're going to talk about which ones are here to stay and which ones fade away. We will begin by discussing some topics around affordable housing, then move to the future of digital mortgage, and then we'll wrap it up uh, with a conversation about consolidation that's occurring in the industry, uh, mainly on the the vendor side. So Matt, maybe before we start discussing the trends, uh, maybe a quick update on where the market is in general right now and how you kind of see that influencing things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Um, John. and, And it couldn't be any more different than it was a couple of years ago and even six months ago. And and I think some folks figured that this was coming. You know, it's tricky to to take as much money and and give it away to folks for COVID relief and not expect consequences, but just some things that, that I'll touch on in terms of rates. You can easily see now where rates are up five and above for 30-year mortgages. And and even a year ago, I think people were getting 30 years for as little as the upper twos. And so what does that mean? Well, there's there's several implications to it. One is, is that it's clear to me that anyone that has those lower rates is probably going to keep them. There's no no motivation whatever to try to refinance into a higher rate and at the same time, you know, you've seen an enormous amount of growth in in terms of property values. So it's an it's a market where people are going to be motivated to stay still where they are. The other component is is housing supply. So, you know, when you take a look at statistics, they're important. I think the inventory that I heard um, at one of the MBA events was we were down to about a month of supply, which is you know really all-time lows, to be honest. And so what does that mean? What does housing supply mean? First of all, what caused it? Well, we we know that housing starts have been down. Um, There's been pressures due to COVID for supply chain, cost of lumber, and so forth. But the bottom line is, is there's just nothing on the market. And, And again, housing's seasonal, so we should see more stuff come on the market now through the summertime. But but it's at all-time lows. And so when you look at that supply and you combine it with the rate environment and the overall economy, it doesn't look to me like we're going to see a whole lot of activity in the refi space. It looks to me like this will be a purchase market for quite a long time. And um, 
And so with that said, you know, you're, you're in a completely opposite environment where refi ruled and you saw an enormous amount of, of volume in terms of origination. So, you know, couldn't be any more different. Oh, that's not a rosy forecast there. So how do you think it's going to impact uh, affordable housing programs that kind of a, not been in focus the last couple of years? When you look at affordable, it's always been it's always been a thing, regardless of the political winds and which way they blow. But I think more so with the, the Democrats in office, you saw a big move across the board in terms of affordable. For entities such as Fannie and Freddie, it was an expansion or refocus on on what they're doing in the single family housing side. FHA, I think, with more influence from the White House, has seen additional programs that are starting to be cultivated. But again, I, I think there's a couple of things that are really make this tricky. And as much as we are very much advocates of affordable housing programs, with actualized consulting, there's going to be some some pretty decent headwinds. Um, We just talked about rates and we just talked about affordability in terms of home price appreciation. So if if you just take a look at that and you say, okay, we're going to slice up all the potential borrowers into tiers or tranches, you go from the very wealthy and and those that have plenty of money for down payments down to Folks that have limited income, maybe not a lot of money to put down, uh, many of them first-time homebuyers. And what happened with the rates and the prices moving up is you just, in in essence, you just carved out one or two tranches of borrowers that just can't apply for homes anymore due to the affordability factor. So I think that, you know, you're, you're really looking at, some creative thinking, I believe, is going to be able to solve some of this. But at the end of the day, you know, it's 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 not as easy as it, it once was, even six months ago, to think about how some of these programs would, would work. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and I heard some commentary about this at the MBA secondary conference, but what what you have to also think about when the GSE's regulator steps in and pushes buttons around affordability. They're all looking at the same types of borrowers from an income and asset and and credit perspective, as are the government programs, rural housing, FHA, and, and VA. And so you have, in essence, a, a competition or a competitive environment that maybe wasn't, wasn't there before. So what are the implications to that? Well, a couple, I think. One, one force would say that you're going to see more people get into homes. And that very well may be true given the diversity of the different programs. But on the other side of it, you you wonder if maybe based on credit that the lowest credit quality borrowers are going to end up with the government programs. And and that's not necessarily, I think, the intended uh, outcome of all of this. But you know, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to read the crystal ball, uh, you know, and 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 make forecasts. But again, I think affordable is really important for us as a as a people in the U.S. Um, but we'll see. It may be a little bit more difficult than we thought. That's interesting. I know recently Canada has 
I think they banned foreign ownership of real estate for a period of two years for most foreign investment. Do you ever see it getting to a point like that in the U.S.? I mean, I'll be honest. I'm a little bit of a novice in this this topic, but what I would say is is that, from my knowledge, most of the foreign investment comes in in the form of the commercial side of the house, as opposed to single family or single family runner rentals. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting interesting topic. I I really don't see that we would enact any laws or regulations around that. Probably the opposite, maybe have some incentives that would support the reverse in terms of, you know, supporting either either statewide or local ownership of properties. But I don't think that we'll go to the extreme that Canada has. Quite frankly, you know, Canada has been much more throughout their history in the housing ecosystem. They've been much more focused on good safe housing than they have driving towards everyone should own a home. Um, And the distinction is pretty dramatic in terms of that. And so what you see in Canada is you see a lot of folks rent, but the, um, but the rental properties are all high quality or many of them are at least. And some of the programs there much support that type of the market rather than home ownership. So let's kind of take a little turn here in our discussion. So you hear a lot of buzz, coming back about digital mortgage and how it can address some of these problems. Do you have any thoughts on kind of like what's real and what's more marketing buzz around that as it relates to uh, the topic today? Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions too, because this is your bailiwick, but you know, to me, I think that folks have characterized digital mortgage in some ways that are actually not what I would consider to be constructive and I'll give you a couple of examples. So in the last five or six years, a lot of folks called POS solutions, digital mortgage. And I think we all know by now that POS is a a nice way to engage the borrower to provide information, two-directional information, and cut out some of the manual nature of moving information and documents. But it never really led to anything that was very digital other than automating some of the paper. So at the end of the day, the POSs really didn't deliver on digital. The other thing I think was e-closing and all of the things related to e, like the online notarization, e-vaults and so forth. I think a lot of those actually were very, very much accelerated by COVID. And I think that those are probably going to stay as practices in the lender shops, it doesn't make sense to abandon what worked well um, in a crisis mode. But again, I don't know that all of those technologies really define digital. In fact, actualizes digital mortgage offering. What we promote with our customers is much more about how do you digitize the paper? How do you automate the processes? And how do you eliminate the redundancy within that mortgage process? For us, we believe there's there's still quite a ways to go. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I believe that there's a long way to go in terms of that. I think the pressures that are going to be put on the industry due to low purchase volumes are going to create the need to do the to do those things in terms of automation, but we'll see. And so, you know, John, I know you 
you know, both of us attended the MBA tech conference. It was interesting to me in that there wasn't a real big buzz about any one thing. I mean, in prior years, we've heard about, you know, POS, we've heard blockchain, whatever, but not so much a buzz, but we did see some companies out searching for new things. What What's your take on what we saw and whether you think that, that there's anything really new or if it's just more of the same? I think a lot of it was kind of the impending change in the market. People knew it was coming, so there was a little hesitation on uh, on the excitement that you normally see out there. Didn't see anything groundbreaking. Uh, actually saw one or two uh, new entrants to the LOS space, which was interesting. Timing might not be the best on their part, but they were taking a different approach than a lot of the legacy players, where it seems like legacy has... Uh, pretty much, it's still a form-based process, right? So they've made an electronic version of the old form, electronic version of the document, uh, but really never touched the process itself. Uh, so I think you're going to see in the next couple of years, kind of mid-sized, smaller players do the cost pressure. They're going to be looking for process improvements. Uh, and there, there's, there's a couple of vendors out there who probably have a better mousetrap these days. Uh, it's just, will they survive long enough to uh, to make an impact? Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't see a rosy picture for a lot of the POS players. And there's just too many fintechs that came in to try to solve for some of the e-pieces. And so, you know, it's 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 going to be tough on a go-forward basis. Uh, most people that are in the business intimately understand this. But for those that don't, it's mostly priced on a per loan basis or per closed loan for that matter. And so if you, if you think that the forecasts that you read are correct, I mean, you're at a 50% reduction in, in per loan volume. It's really tough to survive when you're not even making money in the biggest boom time in the history of the mortgage market. And so, you know, for me, I think there's going to be a lot of shuffling. I think a lot of companies are for sale. It's going to be a really, really interesting move forward from the mortgage tech players. Yeah, so actually, we're starting to see, well, we've recently had a consolidation of two pretty big players. Uh, we're seeing some smaller fintechs either getting taken out or looking to acquire. Kind of, What's your thought on the upcoming, like I guess, wave of consolidation or change in the vendor landscape? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at some of the players, let's just go over a few. So Black Knight clearly has been buying things for many years. They've been active in in purchasing things that are peripheral um, to both their LOS and their servicing platform. And quite honestly, I think they they bought some very good companies. Additional players like Citus AMC have been gathering up content. Um, You read about that in the press. Um, They've been building out, you know, an inventory and a portfolio of, of companies that do round out a lot of the business. And then ICE has been more, I guess, you know, for bigger, splashier purchases. You know, of course, originally they got into it with the purchase of MERS, which is small, small potatoes compared to Ellie May. Um, and though a lot of folks didn't pay as much attention to the Simplifile acquisition that was extremely strategic in terms of e and um, all of the e closing uh, knowing that they dominate the e recording space and then you know the announcement about the purchase of black knight 
holy smokes. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, a, a shark trying to eat a baby whale. I mean, that's, that's a, an unbelievable acquisition. If it happens, I, I really don't know what it all means. I could speculate. All I do know is, is that the, the bigger players keep adding and the smaller players are going to be pinched out. All of the fintechs, if they didn't make their money by now, it's going to be tricky. Of course, they're, they're probably looking to sell anyway, but but it's going to be tough. The, the mom and pop companies that have been around for a really long time are going to have an awful, awful struggle with these big players that are buying everybody else. And so, you know, it, it's going to be tricky. I'm not going to go as far to talk about antitrust concerns, but but clearly there there's going to be people lobbying for those types of dialogues. But you know, all in, I think that that it's really interesting. And what I haven't talked about, and I, I don't know that we have time for it today, is the consolidation in the lender and the servicer space. But you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why consolidation should continue in those arenas as well, given what I talked about, the the cost per loan at all time highs and the headwinds in terms of, you know, just not a lot of volume. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's, so, you know, what's, what's, what's the same and what's different, John, from, you know, before COVID and after, I mean, if I could summarize it, it's really, we still never really broke out of this mantra of it's a paper-based process that is now automating into images and data some, but nobody's ever really conquered that that problem. And the the digital mortgage experience still has a long way to go. Again, I, I don't see a lot of companies doing e-mortgages or e-notes. It's all still hybrid with the exception of a couple of players, one, one huge one, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think that's that's kind of where we are. Uh, what do you think next step should be for someone? Let's say I'm a I'm a mid-size originator. I've been making money. I'm doing you know five six hundred loans a month, and the market turned. What where, where do what are my next steps in the next oh, year or two? You know, obviously they should call us, John. I mean, we can yeah, help okay. them <laughs> with our digital mortgage <laughs> offering. But no, I think I think it's time to to buckle up. I think it's time to look at the cost per loan situation. Understand what you can do to automate. Make a true effort to look at your technology stack and your LOS and and ask yourself a simple question. And that is, do the tools that I have enable me to manage my business more efficiently in this this tough times coming ahead or not? And if you got dry powder, it's time to use some because it's not going to be easy for companies that have inefficient processes to stay afloat and Without proactive thought on how you're going to manage your digital mortgage experience internally and externally, um, you may end up somewhere that you're not expecting. But anyway, um, more to come on that. And wanted to thank everybody for listening today. And again, really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Actualizing Success. Make sure to visit us online at www.actualizedconsulting.com where you can explore our service offerings. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred platform. If you've enjoyed what we talked about today, please consider leaving a review and following us on LinkedIn. 
Do you have any questions or would like to share your opinions with us? Please send us a note at podcast at actualizedconsulting.com. We look forward to hearing from you.